0: Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chansey. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good morning, everyone. This is Matt Chancey, and this is another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast. Today, um, we have a business attorney on, Kimberly Carrera, and her focus is as an outside general counsel working on finance and financial processes for high growth companies, making sure that they grow smart. That sounds like something every small business should want to do. So, Kimberly, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Pleasure to meet you.
1: Thanks for having me today, Matt.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, of all the things that you could have picked when you decided to get into law, how did you gravitate towards this general counsel role for you know small and emerging businesses? Or, and I apologize, I don't mean to say small. You might want to define what that actually means, like so that you know we understand the scope of the type of companies that you want to work for. You play the, you fit the best role. So, how did you pick that?
1: Well, it's going to go back to my family. Uh, my mom was a CPA. And had her own practice, and so I grew up working with businesses. I, I worked in her firm from oh, there's stories that she tells me about uh, putting stickers on the file cabinets uh, when I was a toddler. So I've that's been my life has been working with businesses. Really, haven't known anything else, and so it was a natural fit. I loved taking all that experience that I learned from her and her clients on the tax side and then taking all of that into the legal strategy.
0: Okay. Well, so a natural question I think would be or at least one that I have, so growing up around a couple around CPAs and working in a CPA practice, why not be a CPA? Why take it? Why go the legal angle on the whole deal?
1: I'm not really sure how it came to be. I know that I always wanted to be an attorney. That was my thing. So it was kind of a natural thing I knew that I wanted to be an attorney and so I went to Georgia Tech I actually graduated in three years which anybody that knows Georgia Tech knows that's pretty much unheard of most people there take five years some take six or seven and I got out in three but I knew that I wanted to go to law school and I had three more years of school ahead of me and I was like I got to get out of here so I can get started with my career
0: well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Okay. Um, so what I just heard you say is you had a robust social life while you were at Georgia Tech.
1: Oh, I did. I actually, I did. Don't let the uh, the dedication and the work ethic uh, fool you. Uh, I, I still know how to play hard. <laughs> In fact, I was uh, a tutor for the Athletic Association. And I figured if you can get football players through this stuff, then you know the your content, your material. But, you know, those became some great friends of mine and, you know, definitely had had the a great social life. And uh, to this day, still tailgate, still go to all the football games, even with the struggles that Georgia Tech has had in the last couple of years. I have not missed a home game yet.
0: (laughs) Very good. Well, you know, hey, there's a the team might be a little bit down right now, but they have a pretty good history and a pretty good track record. So I think that, you know, fan bases are, they can be fickle sometimes, but everything is cyclical. It's not, you're not always going to have a winning tradition. So, um, and that's funny. I played football in college and I remember the tutors and stuff that, that we had. So, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily need a lot of that stuff. I was always a decent <laughs> student when I applied myself, but I know there are guys that are very appreciative of the role that you played there. So. Yeah. Totally understood. So great. So Georgia Tech. And then where'd you go to law school?
1: I went to Georgia State. So okay. right down the road uh, here in Atlanta. And I loved it at at Georgia State so much so that not only did I get a law degree there, I went back after I finished and got a master's in tax.
0: Okay. LLM, right?
1: No, it, it's actually um, a master's in tax is not the LLM. It's not through the law school. It's through the business school. Okay. So it would be the uh, the degree that you'd go um, to get the educational requirement for the CPA.
0: Got it. Understand. Okay. So a little, it's a little different, but I'm with you. Okay. So that was obviously before you started working in your career. So now you're like, I got a degree. I'm an attorney, and now I want this master's in tax. So at that particular time, like what were you thinking you were gonna do with, with that knowledge, right? I wouldn't say skill because you don't have the skill yet, the, right. the practical application, but what did you think you were gonna do with that?
1: So when I first came out of law school, I actually started my own law firm. And I was working with my mom, she had her CPA clients, I had my uh, law clients, and a lot of those overlapped. And The whole idea of sharing fees and doing this thing, she wasn't going back to law school to become a lawyer to share fees. So the easiest way was for me to get my CPA. Now, I never got my CPA because I moved on from my own law practice. Another neighboring law firm gobbled me up and said, you know, run our law firm for us. We don't know how to run a law firm. So I did that for a year or two. And then got into this financial consulting, and I was doing unclaimed property compliance, and that was a whole new world to me. Through all of my experience working with the my mom's CPA firm, through undergrad business, through law school, through my master's in tax, the only time I had heard of a cheat was in the context of like wills, right? And if you don't have anybody to leave your estate to. It would go to the state. That's the only time I had heard of that. But then there's this whole concept of unclaimed property where companies have financial assets that they do not own. And they have to either find the owner or turn it over to the state. So I did that for over 10 years and still do some of that. Okay. So to educate people a little bit, give us a fact
0: pattern or example of how that would occur. That because obviously you were coming in to solve that problem, right? So how does that problem even occur in the first place? Give me an example of how somebody would even end up in that situation, needing that person to solve that problem.
1: All right. So you're an employee, you get a paycheck and for whatever reason, you're not on direct deposit and you don't cash your check. All right. That money is yours. You get a W-2 that says you, you've been paid this amount of money at the end of the year, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it's not in your bank account. And so the company can't keep that money forever. They have to find you. Hopefully you're still an employee and say, hey, you didn't cash your check. I need you to cash this, right? They can't find you. They have to give it to the state. Well, the state doesn't see this as a tax. So anytime that We've got economic recession, maybe uh, state revenues are down. They like to go in and do audits and try to collect this money because it goes into a fund. Sometimes it even goes into their general fund, right? So this is a revenue source for some of the states. Not all of them, but some of them. And you can go and collect it from the state. In fact, I've got a check from an insurance company I'm trying to collect from Georgia right now. So it it happens to even to me. But this can be payroll checks. It can be vendor checks, um, AR credits if you've overpaid a company, utility deposits, bank accounts, life insurance, gift cards. I mean, the list goes on and on about what this can be. Anywhere that there's financial uh, assets, there could be unclaimed property.
0: Interesting. So, is that, I've heard about unclaimed property for individuals, but you're describing it from like a business perspective. Are those part of the same ecosystem? Or are they two separate ecosystems? And what's the statute of limitations, I guess, before the state can reach in and say, hey, nobody wanted this money or nobody claimed it, we can do something with it.
1: Right. So, from a, it's all part of the same ecosystem. Okay. Right. So, individuals claim it, but the companies had to report it in the first place to the state, right? So it depends on what state it is, what type of asset it is. Like a payroll check, a lot of states say after one year, the companies have to report it to the state. Or something like a vendor check or bank accounts or other assets, it may be three years or five years are the typical
0: Gotcha. Understood. Okay. So working on unclaimed property and so, and you did that for a while, right? And then- Did
1: that for over a decade now.
0: A decade. Well, look, that snuck up on you, you know. (laughs) It
1: did. It really did.
0: (laughs) And then the next thing you know, you're like, okay, wait a minute. This is probably not all the reasons that I went to school and got all the education and training that I got originally, right?
1: (laughs) It, It was actually, I love working with the unclaimed property. I work with all aspects of a company, right? We're looking at their policies and their procedures and how they do their accounting, right? So I'm using the accounting side of my brain. I'm using the legal side of my brain, um, all coming together. So I wouldn't say that it's not that I didn't go to school for it. I just didn't know about it, right? It was such a a unique area of law that not a lot of people know about. Sure. So, no, it's actually, it's been a great... um, like testing ground, right? To learn about all different areas of a company. I mean, for example, you're setting up a gift card program, right? You're working with the legal department, the accounting department, the sales department, the marketing guys, you know, everybody, right? So we work with everybody to find business solutions to like really big problems.
0: Okay. So, Understood a little bit. Okay, I got what you're going with there. So obviously, it was a kind of a cross-disciplinary or multidisciplinary approach to figure out how to solve these problems. So you had to engage engage a bunch of di- tap into a bunch of different <laughs> knowledge bases to figure out how to pull it off, right? Which
1: correct, yeah,
0: it's good. You know, being cross-trained. You know, I tell people all the time that you know the problem. And this is not congruent with our conversation, but one of the things that a lot of clients have a problem with is their current advisors don't communicate very well with one another, whether it's tax, legal, finance, whatever it is. And I always told them I say that's because primarily they don't all really speak the same language and they Correct. don't understand how to talk to one another all that well, per se. Right. You would think that they do, but they really don't. So, no, uh,
1: no. And I try to do that. I mean, the first day working on unclaimed property, uh, we were meeting with the IT uh, company that was doing a project for us. And knowing nothing about unclaimed property and just sitting in on the meeting, right? And we're going through you know, the decision tree. And this is where my history at Georgia Tech came in really handy. Because as we're going through all of that, they're all stumped on why it's not working. And then I'm going, ah, let's try moving like, you know, this if statement around or like that, the logic's just not right. And so they fixed it and it worked. And at the end of the meeting, I was like, I'm either going to be your best friend or your worst nightmare. Cause I speak your language and I speak their language and I can be in, you know, communicate between them very well. So, you know, don't make me too mad. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. I find many of the biggest misunderstandings in business aren't intent to be misunderstandings in business. They're communication issues.
1: Yes. Communication is uh, probably the biggest roadblock to a lot of deals and a lot of situations.
0: And I would say secondarily behind communication, it's pride. Because when you tell another professional something and you use your nomenclature and they don't understand what it is, they rarely will ever go. "Um, Can you explain that to me exactly what you mean in English? And they'll just go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And act like they know what they're talking about and not really understand the nuance of what you're actually talking about. (laughs)
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sounds like you've been there before
0: a <laughs> <laughs> couple times, a couple times. So <laughs> I, maybe I'm just a translator in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
1: Sometimes I feel like I'm a traffic cop, right? Yeah. Like just trying to direct deals and the different parties in the deal and saying, you know, this is what you want and this is what you want. And this is how we can meet in the middle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't disagree. I think that makes a lot of sense. So. Well,
1: and in, in the middle of the last crazy couple of years, I also um, got, took an in-house position with a company in the supply chain. So talk about a couple of uh, years that have just been insane, right. right? So doing the unclaimed property stuff, I also at one point left the firm and started my own because I wanted to expand beyond just unclaimed property right? I was enjoying the unclaimed property, but it was kind of becoming a little bit routine. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get back to helping companies uh, grow, right? And some of the other legal aspects of corporate governance and contract negotiations and some of that kind of, I'll call it fun stuff, right? Sure. So one of my uh, clients decided to bring me on, uh, on board for a couple of years and Let's talk about some insanity with the supply chain.
0: Yeah. And look, let's be clear. I'm going to backtrack for a hot second. It's not Uh that unclaimed property became routine. It's the fact that you had done it for a while. You had mastered the skill set and you just weren't growing anymore. The complexity of it to a novice looking at it is never going to feel routine to you and develop that skill because you had done it and practiced it for a while. So, you know, don't make it sound super (laughs) easy for the listeners to go out there and know how to navigate that environment because it's not.
1: No, it's really not. um, um easy I mean you've got fifty states plus a couple of other random jurisdictions like DC and Puerto Rico and everybody and so you've got fifty state laws you know you've got federal um law on top of that you've got you know there's this giant matrix that unclaimed property people have of trying to keep track of all the rules, right because you've got property types you've got states you've got different deadlines it's kind of like a controlled chaos in a lot of ways that it does take years to to learn unclaimed property so yeah do not get me wrong and then of course you've got states that are changing the rules as you go right um that's one thing about Delaware is that you know when I started their audits went back to 1981 yeah and now they're just They're just 15-year look-back periods. Sure. But those audits can take two, three, five years. It's not unusual for these audits to go on because you are digging so far deep into the records and the the data, right? You've got to go so far deep. It takes that long to get things done.
0: And it would be nice if it were in some database online that was searchable and sortable. But I'm going to bet that that's just not how that works when you go back, especially when you go back predating computers and the Internet to some extent. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, even think about, like, can you on your own uh, financial records go back to you know 2005? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It, probably not. You know, so. Now, let's look at a multinational company that has been in business for, you know, 100, 150 years. Right. They've gone through accounting system changes probably three or four times in the last 15 years. They have retired servers. You know, it's a technology nobody knows how to get into anymore. Even if you have maintained the server, how do you get the data out of it? That's yeah, right. It, it's a little bit of insanity. Um With all of that. So you're right. It's not that it became routine. It's not easy to get into. It's a complicated mess for practitioners. And you know, it's something I'm still doing, right? I've just expanded my offerings um, so that it's not solely unclaimed property.
0: In a way, statute of limitations became a very practical solution to saying we just don't know how to get back and go there and look for it anyway.
1: (laughs) Well, so that is one thing with unclean property is that everybody set the record retention to seven years based off of federal tax, right? Some of them might go to 10 years. No one goes to 15 and 20 years. Right. Right. So then we come into these, it's not really a statute of limitations of the data is not there. It's, Oh, you don't have the data. Let's estimate what your liability would have been if you had the records. And so then we get into the estimation arguments about what's a reasonable estimation and how do you go about doing this? And that's a fight that I'm having with Delaware on several fronts right now.
0: Understood. So we've got the experience of unclaimed property. We work with some inside counsel and supply chains. We've gathered all this experience, but then there's this, there's this person inside of you going, I want to help business owners in high growth grow smart. How does yeah. that pivot come about? How does that transition come about? And what does it look like?
1: So I am a small business owner, right? I have worked with small businesses throughout my career at various times. Most of the unclaimed property is um, actually larger businesses. And some of the names that you would recognize, you know, from Fortune 500 and everything. But my passion is really with the smaller businesses, the family owned businesses, the ones that you can really get into and do strategy with, right? Whether it's tax or growth, all of that is really fun to me, right? Of trying to figure out the pieces to the puzzle, how it all fits together, how we can accomplish your goals.
0: Okay. Fair enough. So, so when we, when I made the introduction and we started them, so we're outside general counsel, which implies the company's not big enough to basically hire you full time. So you have to fractionally divide your interest between multiple small businesses as a general counsel type role. And then You know, financial and financial processes. So let's talk about that. What are financial and financial processes that you're implementing on a fractional basis for small businesses? Where I'm assuming you would have picked the things that add the most value, right? So that they can't execute themselves. So, what are some of those things?
1: Well, a lot of times I have found that small business owners are good at what their technical expertise, right? They are good at being a doctor. They are good at being an architect. They are not great business people though. Right now, there are some that are awesome at that. But for the most part, they don't do all that great on the business side of things. So I help with setting everything up from, here's your banking relationship, right? So like I have got financing for companies and negotiated with banks on, so that they can grow. I have worked with uh, venture capital to get more uh, funding into a a company. And then working with them about like setting up their accounting processes of, you know, here's how you issue a check and rules about like, okay, you need two signatures if it's over this amount, or you can have your bookkeeper issue checks for, you know, all of this. And then as you start growing and you have to start scaling, right? And so you see that a lot of companies have very manual processes when they're small. They're using maybe their online banking to do checks, but then they kind of go to like a QuickBooks and then they're going to need to go to something else that's a little bit more, you know, an enterprise system that, you know, it could be an SAP or an Oracle or Great Plains or something like that. So setting up those processes to make sure that it works for that stage of the company.
0: Sure. And as a company's evolve and grow, you know, what works to what's the old expression? What got you here won't get you there, right?
1: Right. And my rule of thumb is that about every 30% of growth, you have to redo your processes.
0: Interesting. I've never heard anyone actually quantify or, yeah, quantify, yeah. yeah. So that number of saying at 30% of growth and where did that, heuristically, where did that come from? That shortcut of saying, hey, we've grown 30%, what we're doing isn't good there. Where did that come from?
1: That's just from experience of helping companies, right? And everything from startup $0 revenue to, you know, hundred million dollar revenue of watching them grow and going, this is broken. It's time to fix it now, or this isn't working anymore, right? It worked fine, you know, a year ago, but now it's not. And so going in there and saying, all right, let's, you know, restructure a department or let's change the workflow or add more people, right? You can't, Scaling isn't just adding people on top of the same processes. A lot of times, you're automating processes, right? You go from a very manual, like, let's keep an Excel spreadsheet for our finances to having a software do it. And then you can automate the disbursements and things like that.
0: Sure. And the business owner is going, I just got comfortable with the way we were doing it before.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's what happens I mean, there is a case of you've grown too fast, right? Sure. And you get ahead. And one thing that I've worked with a lot of business owners over the years is that one area of your company is going to grow fast. That doesn't mean everybody else in your company is going to grow fast, right? So your sales is going to get ahead of your operations, is going to get ahead of your accounting, right? And then you got to You may even have to slow down your sales. You don't want to stop them because that pipeline can dry up really quick. But you may have to rein them in a little bit while operations, while the business side catches up with everything.
0: So that's a good chicken and an egg conversation, right? So let's lean into this a little bit because I've heard this argument both sides from a business owner, right? We're going to build The back end and the service team, and hire all these people and get all our processes. And then we're going to go figure out how to market and drive in the customers because we don't want to have any gaps in fulfillment. We want to make sure that they get a great experience. And then there's the other people that are like, well, I'm going to sell it first and see if somebody will buy it. And then if somebody will buy it, I'll figure out how to service it. Like I'm sure you've seen both of those, right? I
1: I have, and I've done both of those. And I don't think that it's really all or nothing. Right. Sure. It's you're building both sides at the same time. Sure. But for whatever reason, whether you maybe you have a rock star sales guy, right? Or maybe you've got, you know, a rock star accountant or something like that. Or just, you know, this week I'm working on accounting and the accounting processes while, well, you know, and next week I'll be on sales for whatever it is that I think just don't happen at the same time. maybe you're not hiring at the same pace or it takes longer to put in you know a CRM for the sales team, right? And so while they're trying to implement and figure out, get trained on this new system, the business side, you know the the legal and the accounting and the marketing people get ahead, right. Um, so it's not that you build all of one and then do the other. At least that's not the best case scenario. The best case scenario is you're working on all of them, right? But based off of just things that happen, the cycle of business, there's always going to be this push and pull on both sides.
0: Sure. Sounds a little bit like a marital relationship. Neither one of them are going to love the other one the exact same amount at the exact same time, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Very good. Very good. Okay. So, so now that we know, like, kind of some of the role you're playing and the value you add as that outsource general counsel. So, um, I know originally we had started the conversation with some of your feedstock or your original clients came from your mom's CPA firm, right? Hey, by the way, right. good on you for leaning into that opportunity. Not everyone has that opportunity, but good on you. Yep. Um, so how do clients find you today and know who you are and the role that you play and know when that you would would fit and add value to their growing infrastructure, right? How does how does that happen?
1: Well, I mean, we got the online marketing, I got the website, I'm on LinkedIn, everything like that. But that's all kind of that's the nice to have, right? Well, it's not nice to have. You have to have that stuff now, but that's not how I find most of my clients, right? Uh, it's old-fashioned networking, it's word of mouth, it is going out to events and talking to people and saying, hey, I can solve your problem, right? Uh, one of the things that I have found that particularly in legal and in finance, but in general in business, we like to do business with people we like, right? And you don't ever want to like, see somebody calling and that caller ID pops up and it's like, and you're like, man, I don't want to talk to the lawyer. Right. <laughs> I don't want people to be like decline. Um, so I want to work with people that I like. And that comes from meeting them typically in person, but also via zoom. I do a lot of zoom meetings, but it's, it's referrals. It's networking. It's getting out there and meeting people. Is one of the things that is great kind of in this post-pandemic world is the getting back out and seeing people again. <laughs> sure.
0: Understood. You know, and I'll, I'll piggyback on that a little bit. Um, you know, I know all industries have this thing where they say we like doing pe- business with people we know, like, and trust, right? Right. And I agree with that to an extent. But I think the other part of it where I fundamentally disagree just a little bit is That attorney, whether I like them or don't like them, if I know that every time I pick up the phone and I talk to them, that they're doing something good for my business and it's demonstrable, the value they add, then I know that's an important person on my team. And even if personality wise, we're maybe not the best, but I know they fight for me as hard as I would fight for them if the roles were reversed, then I can learn to like and respect that person because of the professionalism they bring to the role that they play, right? Yes. And I I think that too many people do business with people that they solely like that really don't bring value to the equation. But they're like, hey, I like this person. I think they're great. And then there's and then the relationship deteriorates over time. They started off liking them and they're like, why do I keep paying this person? I don't feel like anything ever happens when I pay that person, you know?
1: No, I mean, and that is um, completely true there, too. And this is a professional life. This isn't like, I'm going to go out and and drink with you. Like, right. Like this is, do I respect you as a business person? Do we have similar values in trying to accomplish goals? Right. One of my things is we're going to grow smart. Right. And so are we going to do things, you know, being compliant Compliance with a lot of the laws and the general business principles, right? Are you setting your expectations in reality, right? We can make financial projections all day long, but are they based in any kind of reality of, yes, this is a, you know, a smart goal, things like that. So when I say that people that I like or that people like me, it's not that, hey, we have to be best friends. Right we don't have to go out and be able to to drink together or um go to to dinner together, but it's can we work together
0: and I think you honestly I think you nailed it when you came back and said um professional-like versus personal-like. I don't think people understand the difference between the two. And when they think like their default state is personal-like, what I hang out with them, what I play golf with them, what I drink with them, whatever. And you're like, you know what, if I had to have a personal-like relationship with every person that I do business with, I would never get any business done.
1: No. Well, And one of the things about personal-like in business is that you do spend too much time at the golf, course or the ball games right and you don't get the work done if you like them too much right so there's that balance there's a fine line between you know having enjoying the people that you're working with right the one thing I do not want for anybody whether it's me uh seeing somebody calling me or me calling somebody is to be like I hate talking to them. I feel like it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's you know, not serving our goals of moving the company forward.
0: Understood. So, look, things are always changing. The puck is always moving, per se, right? So, mm-hmm. with what's going on right now, you know, in, in the financial markets, in society as a whole, you know, technology is a disruptor and, and the role that you play in businesses. Are there any current headwinds or obstacles that you see on the horizon that you're looking to potentially plan around and, you know, help your clients navigate with, with what's coming, right? So, I mean, right. that's, a, that's the goal, is not to always plan for what's happening right now but what might be coming down the the line?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I like to do with my clients, particularly when they're new, is do like a risk audit. And where are you most susceptible to damage or to risk? And so that can be everything from a cybersecurity policy, right? So what happens when that ransomware hits? Can you survive it? Or, you know, obviously I, I'm in the South, we've got, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and, you know, fun things like that coming out of the supply chain uh, world of, you know, it doesn't take much to mess up your supply chain. So can we build in redundancy there so that it protects you when there's a, a, a bump in that supply chain? One of the biggest things that I do is work with clients on diversity. And this isn't, yes, this is employee diversity, but more than that, it's things like diversifying your suppliers so that you have more than one, It's diversifying your customers so that you're not so reliant on one big customer, right? Because then they can set the tone, Right. But you need to be able to walk away at any time. And if you've only got one client or one customer, then that's really hard to do.
0: If they start turning the screws to you, it's not a good situation.
1: Right. So, you know, if, if you are a retailer or, um, you know, like a manufacturer, are you, what are your distribution channels? Are you all in on Amazon? Do you have your own direct-to-consumer brands or you got other brick? And mortar type of stores and distribution channels, things like that. Because if you're all in on Amazon, it's really easy for them to put the screws to you and say, you know, you got to start lowering your margins, right? You got to lower your price point. And that's going to hurt you when, you know, you're trying to also cover payroll and your rent and your cost of goods and things like that.
0: Understood. And look, I i don't know, you're going to know more about this than I am, but I've certainly heard situations where people were using Amazon for sales, fulfillment, distribution, whatever it was. And Amazon themselves ultimately usurped their business model when they saw their, you know, how successful whatever their product was. So uh, that could not be good to have to compete with Amazon at the end of the day.
1: No, I mean, you can look in the supply chain like, all right, they're taking up all the drivers, right? And so trying to find a truck driver to move your goods is harder now than free Amazon.
0: Sure, sure. And let me go back on something I heard you say before. When you brought up cybersecurity, you said when you get hit with a cyber ransomware attack, you did not say if you got hit with it. So lean into that a little bit, because obviously I could tell by the way you phrased that, that that is going to happen to everyone. Talk about why you feel that way.
1: Uh, First of all, I've been through a ransomware event and I do not recommend it. Um, It it is... uh, is very scary going. Is this company going to survive or not? But going through that experience and being around the Georgia Tech environment, being around the, the lawyers over the years, it really is a matter of when and not if. And the way that one person put it, it's you've already been hit, you just don't know it yet. Right? Um, things are in your system, people are in your system, malware, bad actors whatever. And it can be anything from a disgruntled employee to your traditional like Russia, Ukraine, you know, other side of the world hackers or somebody, you know, just a kid playing around and, hey, I got into the system. It can be, if you're not prepared for those situations, the reputational damage, the financial damage that it can do to your company And if it's a ransomware and it takes down all of your systems, right, then it can actually kill your company. And in some cases, even take personal liability with it afterwards. Sure. Right. So, you know, being prepared with the backups, the firewalls, the insurance, having the plan of action so that you can respond quickly when it does happen. All of that is really important. And, you know, lots of lessons learned from the event that I went through. Everything like, you know, do you have everybody in your executive team's cell phone numbers on your cell phone outside of your company uh, address book? Because when you can't get to your company address book, how are you okay. going to communicate with it, each other? If you don't have your teams that you can't communicate because you don't know if that's being compromised or not. Right. And it doesn't even have to be your company, it can be somebody else's company that gets hit that affects you. I mean, yeah. look back in uh, last year when the payroll service provider went down. Right. You got all these hospitals right at Christmas time that can't pay their employees, their nurses, and their doctors. Right? Like that's a problem. And do you have redundant systems to be able to, you know, make sure that your critical services can be maintained through events like that?
0: Sure. And look, I go through a ton of cybersecurity training all the time, and it's terrifying, the case studies and stuff that they always put in that training. But what I find is if you have to boil it down to one common denominator, it's always a mistake of human capital, right? It's a person that clicks on something, opens something, forwards something, does something they're supposed to do. And leadership tends to be much better trained than the employee base, right? So
1: They may be better trained, but they don't always follow the procedures. (laughs)
0: Okay. Fair, fair, (laughs) fair, fair, fair. fair. Understood.
1: Yeah. They may be, they've gone through the training and and know what the risk is, but, you know, it's always leadership that's like, well, you know, we need to open up this port on the server, right? Because of this function that's not working correctly, and then that's the one that ends up being, or it's leadership doesn't invest in the updates, right? So you've got old out-of-date servers that you're working off of or old technologies and things like that.
0: Cool, very cool. Well, so great feedback. And I agree with you. The cybersecurity thing is a, you know, you have to have policies, procedures, and all that stuff in place to make sure it's all managed appropriately. So totally understand. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of running about a little bit at our time today. So I think this has been a fun conversation, but, you know, for a second, let's talk about something that we may have missed. Because we talked about obstacles. Let's talk about opportunities. What are the opportunities coming up going forward where somebody that wants to be really proactive and lean into it um, can maybe potentially gain a competitive advantage in their space by being opportunistic?
1: Right. Well, anytime that we have economic, change is a is literally opportunity right you got you can step in and fill a gap or create a company right now that's going to be here for four generations right one thing that i have noticed is that when say bc funding or bank financing is restricted we actually end up with better companies Right. Because we have to tighten our belts and we have to really focus in on what are we doing? How are we growing? And we're not just throwing money left and right at at people and technology and things that we're not going to use. We have to say, we're going to do this and we're going to do it right. And so the companies that are going to be built right now are the ones that are going to be built for the long haul. Right. So if you have, you know, your first 30 employees or so are the ones that are going to dictate your culture pretty much forever. It is really hard after you get past about that 30 employee mark to change the culture of a company. So, you know, when you've got some really good talent that's available right now um, because of some layoffs or people that are trying to move companies because they're not happy where they are. That gives you a really good opportunity to, to set the stage for the future, right? And we've got some changing technologies where there's some gaps that people can step in and fill those gaps and have a solution to a problem, right? That is ultimately what our businesses are all about is solutions to problems. Yep. And right. so that's what we're, uh, we're working on right now. Well, it's funny.
0: Owners and founders will throw money at things trying to solve problems just kind of willy-nilly, right? Like, like I don't know. Maybe this will work. Maybe that'll work. But as soon as you take in OPM, other people's money, there has to be more tight risk controls or controls on how those dollars are allocated and what they're spent to when you're doing it. So I can absolutely see, because I do some work in that space, when VC or private money comes in and now you're raising outside capital, other people's money is like, no, you don't just spend it like that. It has to be, right. you know, it has to be a defined plan of you know what you're spending it for, what the outcome should be. It's not this beta testing phase that an owner or a founder might do, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and even then, yeah, you know, the last couple of years, the VC money has been easy, right? It's been free. It's been large dollars, some of like the big headlines. And everybody now is like, oh my God, we have to focus in on profitability. All right. It is really hard to go from a free spending environment to a, you know, tailored, structured, disciplined spending approach. Uh, it's much easier to go the other way. And so a lot of companies right now that took VC funding in the last couple of years that are now having the, the uh, demands of we need to show profitability, they're having a tough time of it. And that's where you're seeing the layoffs. It's not because the economics, uh, the solution aren't there is that they literally, they overhired right from the beginning. And so now they have to literally right size themselves. So I don't pay much attention to a lot of the economic uh, headlines. I don't think that our economy is really that bad, but it's, Things that are just having to fix themselves, and we're going back to where we should have been, but for the pandemic. Right? The pandemic was a, a giant disruptor, and we're back. If you had taken a trend line from like 17, 18, 19 to today, we're right where we should be. And um, it just looks like a recession, or it just looks like it's hard because we've had these two crazy up years.
0: Yep. The world thinks many times that more is better, more clicks, more mail, more employees, more leads, more whatever. But better is better. More isn't better. And they have a hard time switching that thought process to, you know, more is not better. Better is better quality. And it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their mind around.
1: And you can take it from like a financial statement, right? You get top line revenue, you got margin and you got bottom line profit, Right. So many people the last couple of years have focused in on revenue, maybe on margin, but they haven't focused in on bottom line profit. And at the end of the day, it's that bottom line profit that matters.
0: That's right. That's quality. And if you look at the and not to make it about financial markets, but if you look at the companies in the financial markets that have ultimately held up better over the past correction or, you know, reversion to the mean that we've had, which you just discussed. It's been quality companies with quality earnings at the end of the day, not all these more speculative companies that have, you know, growth at all costs type deal.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Understood. Well, hey, this has been a great conversation. I've had a lot of fun. Hopefully you've had some fun too. So tell the listeners here and look, we're going to post all of the, uh, links that anybody would ever want to find you at as we develop this content. But, you know, for the people that are listening, tell people how they would find you, Kimberly.
1: So I'm on Twitter at D Carrera, D-E-C-A-R-R-E-R-A. You can find me on LinkedIn at KD Carrera. And my website is dcarreralaw.com.
0: Sounds good. And who should go, who should look for you? Who's the type of person that's listening to this that should go out and find you?
1: So I work uh, mostly with companies. So if you are buying legal services for your company, uh, small business owners, if you're trying to start up, if you want to buy a company, uh, if you want to sell a company or just need day to day help with your legal services, but you don't want to have in-house counsel, then I'm your I'm your woman.
0: There you go. There you go. Good stuff. Well, Kimberly, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I think the stuff that you shared was extremely insightful. um, And I learned something about you. You do something that I do. You punctuate a lot of your sentences and your statements with the word right.
1: I like to grow right, correctly, smart, right. And yes, that is uh, something that I I do a lot to make sure that we emphasize the right things.
0: I never caught that I was doing it until some of my friends and colleagues pointed it out, and then I I now pick it up in other people when they do. it. you have to say, so not a judgment, just an observation.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: All oh, good. So thanks everyone for listening today. This was another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions podcast. This is Matt Chancy with um, business attorney, outside general counsel Kimberly D. Carrera. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever
1: you listen to podcasts.